Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. Later on the show, we'll be chatting with IFI programmer David O'Mahony about his favourite conspiracy films and about their heyday in the 1970s. But first, Ryan White's exceptional new documentary Assassins examines the events both leading up to and in the aftermath of the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. In particular, the film focuses on the two women who appear to be the unwitting pawns in a deadly game of international espionage. The film is now available to rent on iFi at home, and I'm delighted that director Ryan White joins me now from Los Angeles. Ryan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. On, on first looks, you have a very diverse filmography. You've worked on projects featuring Serena Williams, Frida Kelly, who was a secretary, secretary to the Beatles, and then Emmy-nominated work on The Case Against Eight and The Keepers. And I'm just wondering, what first attracts you to a project? What, what, what is it about a story that kind of draws you in? That is a good question, and I wish I could finally answer it two decades into my career, but I, I never know how to answer that, minus I am always hooked by some, I always make character-based films. I've never really made a social issue film or anything that's really thematic in nature. So I'm always drawn to a character or characters that have been through some sort of extraordinary circumstances and been up against the odds. I mean, all all the films that you just mentioned have women at the center of them. I'm, I'm, I think I'm on my 10th film now and I'm about to make my first one about a man. So um, there's been something, you know, I was raised by a single mom in a house with a grandma and an older sister. So I know I've always been drawn more to um, women's stories. But the through line, the only through line I've been able to locate is that it's their character based films. And, you know, Assassins is a strange one in the sense that my two main characters are two total mystery figures, these these women that were being accused of a political assassination, but were, you know, facing a murder trial in Malaysia. So they were they were unattainable to me. They were living in solitary confinement on death row. So my normal MO for filmmaking, you know, even with Serena Williams was I was like embedded in her life for a year, you know, living side by side with her with a camera. And Assassins was very different in the sense that I literally did not did not have access to these women and could not meet them. So I had to tell their stories in a way that was completely different for me as 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 far as my previous films had gone. Also looking at your filmography, just there also seemed to be a theme of ordinary people caught in extraordinary circumstances, which I suppose to a certain extent is the, the bread and butter of documentary, but also this idea of, you know, the case against eight of people fighting the Supreme Court, the keepers fighting the Catholic Church. And now in this situation, you have the most obscure regime in the world and like two women. So there's, there's always that kind of idea of people fighting against something that they can't quite see, that's, but that's shadowy and that's very powerful. Yeah, and I get very drawn to that fight. Um, I'm like a dog with a bone when it comes to it, because I think my my personality isn't very assertive or forceful. So making films like this, allowing myself to like attach myself to someone else's fight for justice, brings out something in me that I don't think most people close to me would say is in my, char- my character nature. Um, But when I watch these miscarriages of justice or, you know, even in Serena Williams, the way she's treated by 
the outside world, even though she's one of the most famous people in the world or the way she's treated by and has been treated by the world of tennis or the audience of tennis. When I watch things that I feel like are unfair or some sort of systemic corruption or mistreatment, then I get very hellbent on seeing the story through to the end. I also love, I love accountability and I love being a part of stories that that hold people to account who've gotten away with things. And I think Assassins is probably fits into that as well, to your point. Um, at the very beginning of the film, there's a, there's a friend of Siti, um, one, of the, one of the women who's accused who's afraid to appear on camera. And then Hami Azmi, who's the journalist that you, you, you interview throughout the film, mentions that most of the media agencies in Malaysia are owned by the government. And I was just wondering, did you encounter any issues or roadblocks or obstruction when you were trying to make the film? Oh, plenty of roadblocks, uh, probably mostly roadblocks. Uh, you know, the, the Malaysian government and the Malaysian police weren't thrilled to participate in this film, so they weren't giving us anything. You know, from the very beginning, we were asking, the best example is the CCTV footage, you know. I don't think there would be a film. I don't think we could have made Assassins without access to the CCTV footage from the airport the day that Kim Jong-nam was assassinated by the two women and no one was willing to give it to us. And we actually didn't get our hands on that until a year into making the film. And that footage, you know, the, the story of assassins is that these women were admitting that they had assassinated Kim Jong-nam, who's Kim Jong-un's brother in the Kuala Lumpur airport. But they were claiming that they thought they were on a reality show and that they were playing a prank when they, when they, committed the assassination. So it's an unbelievable story. It's a totally inconceivable legal defense, but that's what they were admitting. And we could not corroborate that. You know, they were they were spinning this narrative that that's what happened to them, but we couldn't corroborate that without without being able to prove it. And once we finally got our hands on the CCTV footage, which we were very lucky to get, and I can't reveal how we got it, but we got it in the end, totally, not totally, but in many ways corroborated the women's stories and started to open our eyes to the idea like maybe they are telling the truth. But I don't think, you know, the Malaysian government, I don't think looks great in this film for whatever reason they were out to convict these women from the very beginning in what I believe was a very one-sided case where they were totally ignoring the North Korean political side of this. Um, they didn't want to entertain the idea that North Korea played a role in this assassination. And we explore all those reasons in the film that Malaysia might be ignoring that, but I don't think that they were really excited about a documentary crew coming and trying to you know, transparently tell the story of how this assassination went down. And I think that's somewhat understandable. I don't want to be too judgmental of Malaysia because they didn't ask for this. You know, this political assassination was pulled off in their biggest city, in their biggest airport, all over camera. So it was a hugely humiliating international incident for Malaysia that this had happened on their soil and that North Korea had gotten away with it. Literally, you can watch in the CCTV footage, the North Korean spies who orchestrated this in the moments afterwards, changing their clothes, changing their appearances and getting uh, on flights out of Malaysia. So they leave the country and they got away with it. And so Malaysia was faced with this huge dilemma on, are we going to publicly let everybody involved in this case get away with it? Or these two women who have been left behind in Malaysia, are we going to hold them to account and put them on trial for murder, which they did? 
You mentioned there about getting the CCTV footage and that was when it started to corroborate in your head about, you know, whether they were guilty or innocent. But I remember when I first heard about it and this defense of, oh, they thought they were on a prank show and you're just like, oh, come on, that just says. But the long game that's exposed in the documentary of, you know, of the amount of effort and work that was put into this, it's kind of astounding. Were you very doubtful of the women's story when you started or did you think that it, there was might be something in it? I was very, I was very dubious uh, at the beginning because I'm very skeptical by nature. I think most documentary filmmakers are. So, you know, in the U.S., Trump had just taken office when this assassination happened. So it was just a headline. You know, it, it was in the Obama years, this would have been a top story for months because there was very little to talk about because everything was very steady in our, in, in our government and therefore the media didn't have a lot to glom onto. But by the by the Hillary Trump election, there was not the real estate for any other world issues or foreign politics. And so, you know, that's that's how we that's how we digest. That's how we digest the news. The world news is through our media here. And so to me, it was a very open and shut case when I first heard about it. Like, oh, it was crazy that there were two female assassins and they were being played up as, as these Bond villains. But I just assumed that they were you know, part of the North Korean regime in some way, and that they had been paid to do this or trained to do this, and that it was a very open and shut case. And so to find out differently over the course of making this film, you know, I was going to make the film regardless, because I thought this is a great hook for a film. I assumed that the women were lying, but the fact that their legal defense was a reality show defense seemed too good to be true to not make a film about it. You know, and I don't want to spoil the film for your listeners, but I, I will say over the course of the film, because this is how I experienced it as a, film, a filmmaker in real time, making it over two years, I started to learn more and more and uncover more evidence that showed that they might be innocent. So that is the CCTV footage, but it's a lot of other things. You know, we got our hands on all of their text messages, WhatsApp messages, and social media profiles over the course of the three months leading up to the assassination. Because these women were claiming not only had they thought they were playing a prank when they killed Kim Jong-nam, but that they actually had been on a reality show in the months leading up to this. And so when you're able to get your hands on their entire, entire digital footprint and read all of the text messages that they're sending to the North Korean spies who they're claiming they thought were Japanese YouTube producers, sending to their families and friends about what they're doing, watching them post videos from different airports or malls at the moments after they play a prank while they're laughing and the North Korean spies are in the footage telling them to turn off the camera. Then you start to connect a lot of dots, but without having had, without having had access to all of that, all it was was simply a a story these women were telling without any evidence to back it up. As you allude to there, there's a lot of characters in it and there's a very complex timeline, if you like. And I was just wondering, what was your approach to the storytelling as part of the documentary? Were you very clear how you wanted to go from the start or did a lot of it happen afterwards in the editor or how did that process work for you? Well, I think that's a really fun part about my job. I, I think that's what I love about editing documentaries versus scripted stuff is I hate planning. And so um, to go in with a plan, a script is a plan, right? And so, so to go in shooting with a script is never as fun for me as going in without a script and especially bringing um, that unscripted stuff back to my poor editors at home in Los Angeles and dumping it on their desks is uh, also one of my favorite parts of the job. So <laughs> I had an amazing editing team getting to work on this. And the mandate from the beginning with this film 
you know, because I referenced Trump earlier, I feel like we had a re u really unique opportunity with a true crime story. You know, this is probably one of the biggest political assassinations of our lifetime. It's true crime on the largest geopolitical scale. And yet it seemed that nobody outside of this world knew what the real story was. They didn't know the backstory. They didn't know what the women's truth was. They didn't know that there was this murder trial going on and what, whether the women were gonna be executed or not. So it allowed us to edit one of like the largest geopolitical true crime stories, I think with true suspense to it, which is why I'm always asking audiences not to Google it before they go into it and to just to just ride the journey with us. Um, and so that was the mandate in the edit room was like, let's edit this the exact way I'm experiencing as a filmmaker and you as the editors are experiencing it when I come back from Malaysia every month and dump this footage on your desk and say, you're not gonna believe what happened this time. Let's edit it in that way, which is edge of your seat, which is constantly taking twists and turns. So many surprises, you know, I've never made a film that had this many surprises in it. And that's why we decided to edit that film in that type of way. And, you know, I'm hopeful that audiences will enjoy that journey. Um, I can't say I enjoyed it as a filmmate, <laughs> but I will say I was constantly um, compelled and on the edge of my seat. And so that's what I wanted my audience to, to feel as well. Yeah, and it definitely comes through in the film, which is, it, it's real edge of the seat stuff when you're almost, you can't believe uh, really what you're seeing. Um, you mentioned it briefly earlier on, and I just want to come back to it about the challenge of pulling a film together when your main characters are inaccessible um, to a certain extent. Obviously with Serena, you had access to Serena. With the case against Eight, you had, you had access to the, to the plaintiffs. So I wonder, in relation to this, did you have concerns that you'd be able to pull the film together? because you you literally had no access to the two people who were the most central to the story you're trying to tell. Well, I mean the big question was if you can't access them, how do you how do you get to know them? You know, and and, and I'm using get to get to know them in quotation marks because to me the central question of this film, no matter how large and geopolitical and macro um, the web was around these women, the central question I think that we were trying to answer in the film is who are these women and what led them to this moment that they touched Kim Jong-nam's face with a chemical weapon? Um, and because we couldn't meet the women themselves, how do, you, how do you flesh them out for your audience? How do you flesh them out for yourself as a filmmaker? How do you, how do you start to understand who they are? So that's starting at the beginning um, and that's going back to where they're from. And so a big part of this film is tracing their backstories and they have very different backstories. You know, the women, the women claim they didn't know one another. They claim they literally met at Kim Jong-nam's face. They came from different directions, different sides of the airport and touched his face seconds after one another. And they claim they didn't want, know one another and their backstories leading them to the moment are very, very different. So we found as many people from their past as we could, including their families, both their families participate, both women are from villages from different parts of Southeast Asia, cities from uh, Indonesia and Duan's um, from Vietnam, Duan, was actually quite educated. You know, she had been to college, uh, but she wasn't using her degree and she had been desperately seeking fame for the last decade, uh, trying to be a star in Vietnam. She was on Vietnam Idol. She was on prank shows that were filming in Hanoi. Siti was very different. She had uh, left school in the sixth grade, had ended up in the sweatshop industry in Jakarta, had eventually 
made her way to Kuala Lumpur through human trafficking, ended up in sex work there. So her allure to this was definitely not fame. It was more um, a better life and better paycheck. She was sending money back home. She had a toddler back home that she was sending money to. And so really um, trying, even though we couldn't meet them, trying to understand who they were, I think was was paramount to this film. And unfortunately, we were being told by everybody on the ground in Malaysia from the moment we began the film, the moment the trial was beginning, that these women were gonna be executed. And so that was one thing when we assumed they were guilty, um, that was probably more of a storytelling detriment, the idea that we might never get to meet them. But that was far more detrimental and impactful the more we started to think they might be innocent. And then the question became, wow, we really feel like we understand these women now and where they came from. Wow, we're really starting to think they might be telling the truth and they might be innocent. How do we make a film? Can you ethically make a film that proves someone's innocence uh, and then you watch them die anyway? through the death penalty in the end, Mm -hmm. how do you put that out into the world? And that was a real, that was a real question mark. The idea that we might be making this for two years and the end is just too dark and too much of a miscarriage of justice that we don't feel right finishing it. And then we were, and then the plan became, well, if they're going to be executed and convicted, as everyone was saying, there would be a small appeals process in Malaysia before they're hanged, where perhaps we could get the film out. So that was the timeline, was trying to, we were editing the film at a turbo pace, prepared to release the film the moment they were convicted in an effort to say, okay, the truth didn't come out in the courtroom and the Malaysian government isn't being transparent here. So here's a film where the world can see what these women are claiming their defense are and maybe it can spark an international outcry. And you've seen the film, so you know it didn't unfold in that type of way, Mm -hmm. but that was... That was sort of the the very sort of haphazard plan for most of the filmmaking. Without giving too much away about the film, you do eventually meet the women. We won't say under what circumstances you do. And I just wonder, after everything they've been through, and obviously, you know, film and social media and, you know, filming stuff on phones is very central to the film. Were they reluctant to get involved with the film? Were they very kind of, were they ever wary of what your motives were or who you were or, or why you were making this story? They were very wary and totally understandably wary, right? They had ended up in this situation because a film crew told them they were making a legitimate product and that these women were going to be famous. And it led to these women almost dying, right? In multiple ways. These women handled a chemical weapon that they are lucky to have survived. And then these women faced a trial where the, where the penalty was their lives, was facing the death penalty. And so suddenly they had an American film crew coming to them saying something very similar, like, no, 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 we're legitimate and you should believe us and we're trustworthy and we hope you'll participate in our legitimate product. And so I don't, I, I don't judge the women at all for their wariness. And I think it was probably the biggest challenge of the film was to win their trust over and get them to participate. We were lucky I think in the sense that we had been making the film for two years before we got access to the women. And so their families and their legal teams were very, were very, they knew us well by that point Um, and they trusted us. And so we had people vouching for us that the women trusted saying like, 
Um, maybe you should participate with these people. But they also were very, I think they came out of this experience very different than they went in. And by that, I mean, you know, Dewan is probably the best example because she was the one seeking stardom. She, by the time I met her, was the opposite. She did not want, you know, this is someone who had desperately seek the spotlight for a decade. And by the time I met her, she was so desperate for people not to know who she was, to be completely anonymous, to totally disappear, did not want to be filmed at the beginning at all. Um, you know, I had to spend a lot of time explaining to her even what a documentary was and that if we weren't filming with her, there was no way to include it. You know, I wasn't a, a print journalist where we could do this anonymously. And so, you know, she did end up participating in the end, but watching a woman like that totally have her spirit broken um, from how she began this and how she ended like that, how she ended the experience was really sad to watch. And and Siti, I think, is 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 somewhat similar, minus that Siti Siti wasn't seeking fame that, that ended up in her in this situation. She was seeking a better life. Um, that got totally turned upside down too. So I'm very, very grateful that they both participated in the film in the end. I think it would have been very hard to make the film without them getting to tell their own story. But it was probably the greatest challenge, I would say, if the film was was convincing them that that they should participate. Um, alongside the two women and obviously the, the, the shadowy cast of characters from North Korea, um, the biggest cohort in the film are the lawyers that work on behalf of Sithi and Doan. And I just wonder, I mean, you don't get a very good impression of the Malaysian legal system at the end of it. When, when you'd finished the process of working in Malaysia, what was your kind of overriding impression of the country? Because at the start, you have, you know, the Kuala Lumpur malls, you have the airport, but then you, you seem to have this very antiquated backdoors kind of judicial system. Yeah, I mean, it was a total, uh, it was a total history lesson for me and how and how legal systems work around the world. But it was a very foreign system to me. Um, you know, and it's not very, it's not like the American legal system. Well, first of all, in the process that it takes, you know, I hear the judge made a ruling after the prosecution put forward its case. And the judge, the judge's ruling, which was like a 60 something page rulings, emphatically said that the women were lying and that they were guilty. And so everything took a turn at that point, even before the women were able to put up their defense, where it was like, wow, okay, this one man is deciding their fate. And he just heard, he just heard this totally one-sided argument from the Malaysian prosecution and drew these very rigid conclusions that these women clearly could not have been on a prank show. Um, and so that's when it became certain the women, the women were still, you know, were going to have many, many months of their trial left where they would um, testify and where their defense would put forward witnesses. But it was clear that their fate was sealed at that point, that they were going to be executed. And sometimes it felt like, like, is this judge hearing the same things that we are? Because we were in the courtroom the whole time. And so I was shocked at his ruling. Like, we were drawing completely different conclusions than he was, um, you know, and in, in one of the craziest twists and turns, the judge didn't even know what was coming in this trial. Like the prosecution, I don't want to spoil, but the prosecution throws up this thing at one moment late into the trial 
And the judge was just as shocked as we were. His jaw was on the ground. And that would never happen in our system of law here. The judge would be informed of these massive decisions beforehand. And so to watch the power dynamics, the way they played out in the courtroom, that were not even being controlled by by Malaysia per se, some of these decisions came down to other foreign governments and the pressure that they were putting on different lawyers who were inside the courtroom. So it became very, I never expected the film to become so much about back channeling a foreign diplomacy than it became in the end. It was very like high level foreign politics that were at play, international relations that were going on which was just fascinating to watch, you know, the idea that one woman's life hanged in the balance of how all of these huge foreign governments uh, chose to make decisions was very fascinating to watch go down. You obviously traveled quite widely for the film because there's footage in Indonesia and in Vietnam and obviously in Malaysia. Were you tempted to go to North Korea as part of the, the filming? No, <laughs> I was not tempted. <laughs> I think from the very beginning, we were being tracked uh, for the film that we were making. So I'm sure I wouldn't have been welcome in North Korea. I would love, I would love to visit at some point, but uh, because of the storytelling I was doing, I don't think I would have been very welcomed in there. I don't think I would have made it far past immigration in the airport <laughs> before. Uh, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't totally important, I think, to our film because like square one of our film was that these women were admitting that they had assassinated Kim Jong-nam. And so understanding the North Korean regime was became a very late part of our filmmaking. Like it was mostly about, the story was mostly about these women for, you know, I would say three fourths of the edit. And then we started watching the film and realizing like I was battling the idea of really telling the story of the North Korean regime because that's been, it's been told in so many documentaries and it's such a rabbit hole because it's so fascinating unto itself that I didn't want people to lose focus of the women's stories in favor of this very soap opera uh, of a government and family history. But the more we edited it, the more we realized that you couldn't totally understand this web that the women were ensnared in without understanding a little bit of the history of the regime and how Kim Jong-un, how Kim Jong-un got that power and why his brother was passed up for it. So we put those parts into the film, but I don't think, um, you know, the inner workings of the North Korean government are, are really what, what our film is about, yeah. you know, um, so, but I would, I would love to go there one day, but I'm sure I will never be welcome after having made this film. <laughs> um, how much of the film was, was completed in lockdown or was it, was it kind of all finished and, and you know, put away before last March or was, were you working through the, the last year on it? No, it was finished last, well, well, 2019, thank God. So we were, we were, we were trying to make visits to meet the two women at the end of the film. That was the final, those were the final shoots in Vietnam and Indonesia. And we got into Sundance, uh, which was January of last year. And so you have to finish your film uh, right around Christmas. So we made our trip to those countries uh, in November 
of 2019. So just as the pandemic was hitting Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we hadn't have done that, I'd still be holding on this film. You know, we w- obviously wouldn't have been able to go there for the last year. So we lucked out in that way that we just happened to get the ending of our film right before the pandemic hit. You know, I mean, it's been such a 2020 was such a turbulent year for all filmmakers. So I can't complain at all because our film got to premiere at Sundance at least before, you know, we're hoping that the film still finds audiences through through word of mouth in that type of way. But it was never the, you know, the type of huge theatrical release that you're hoping for your films. And what are you working on next? You said you had a, a male at the center of your next documentary. Oh, well, now I have to think. I always, I'm always bound to these contracts on what I can, t- what I can, <laughs> okay, I think what I can say is I always get like the itch, you know, I made the Dr. Ruth film, which is about, you know, the 90 year old sex therapist mm-hmm. um, at the same time I was making Assassin. So one film was very dark and investigative and one was very um, uplifting and optimistic and, you know, just infectious. The person was infectious to be around. Um, so I'm making two projects that, that, that straddle those two lines again. One is about um, a murder in the US um, um, that I'm making. Um, and one is about uh, the world of design um, and much more, much more fun and lighthearted. So I, call, I always call my job career ADD because I get to <laughs> bounce around between um, different projects that have different tones. And, you know, I'm there um, living in these worlds with my camera. So being able to be in one dark world that really keeps the adrenaline pumping or keeps that that sort of, uh, you know, dog with a bone feeling about justice and accountability. And then one that's just fun to be around, like the world of tennis and Serena Williams or, or sex therapy and Dr. Ruth uh, <laughs> allows me a little bit of a, of a breather um, and to balance those darker stories. Fantastic. Well, as I said, Assassins is now available to rent from IFI at Home. Ryan White, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you, Stephen. It was my pleasure. Assassins is the latest in a long line of films, either narrative or documentary, about ordinary people caught up in extraordinary circumstances. And not only that, ordinary people ensnared in webs deliberately spun by larger political forces. The conspiracy genre has brought us some real classics in the last 50 years, so much so that the IFI ran a dedicated and very popular season of conspiracy films called Trust No One back in May 2018. Joining me now to chat about some of his favourite conspiracy films is the curator of that season, IFI Head of Cinema Programming, David O'Mahony. David, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, hi, Stephen. It's great to be here again. Uh, David, looking at your own favourites and the films that were part of the 2018 season, it's notable that so many of them were made in the late 60s and the 70s, and the genre certainly seems to have had its heyday back then. Why do you think that was? It's definitely true. There certainly was a golden period there. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it's uh, the proliferation of these films in the 70s is in some ways a reflection of the erosion of idealism and optimism that typified the 60s, which had had very much soured in the 70s when we came to things like Watergate or even post-Kennedy assassination, which is probably the most formative example of a a seismic shift that really shook that, um, that, that sense of idealism. You could also look to the student uprisings in Paris, 1968. There was 
terrorism across Germany in the late 60s. Also, as I said, they had the Watergate scandal. So I think that kind of Halesian period in the American psyche of the early 60s coagulated a little bit uh, in, in, when we came into the 70s. And directors responded to that. I mean, it's very fertile territory. It's very, it's very rich. They responded using often the thriller, the thriller form. So the films they were making definitely had a you know, an exciting pulse quickening kind of addictive quality to them. But I don't think they were, they were making escapist films either. These were very anxiety ridden films. They were very anxious. They were very paranoid. They were not, you know, I don't think they were meant to elicit pure enjoyment on behalf of the audience members. These were films that were engineered to make you think and to make you think that there were powers beyond your control, perhaps controlling your destiny, that the truth is being obscured from you, that governments were not to be trusted, entities were not to be trusted and things were uncertain. So there's, it's a real high sense of high anxiety uh, to these films. I, I, also, I would also add, it came at the right time as well in the 70s, which was, if the 60s was um, one type of golden age, the 70s was certainly golden age in, in terms of American filmmaking. And there was a lot of money and resources. And there was, the time was right for these films, which were difficult and troubling films, but they were greenlit very big name actors and directors were attached to them and many of them became hugely successful and, you know, awards contenders. So it, um, it was a little bit of a, a perfect environment for these films to, to proliferate. And what's fascinating, as we, as we talk through the list will become evident, that the actors and the directors who were involved in these projects, I mean, it was the creme de la creme of cinema at the time, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, Sidney Pollock, Robert Redford, they really seemed to have been prestige projects at the time. They really were, given that the, as, as we were just talking about, given that the content on these films is so troubling and so difficult, and it, it really is asking you to reflect, uh, you know, upon government and society at large as being fundamentally untrustworthy and that you know, the old norms, the old norms of society are, are false and you should question everything. Like, these, these are very troubling films. As you mentioned, there was a galaxy of stars attached to them, um, like, as you mentioned, all, all the President's Men, which was about the Watergate scandal, was nominated for four Oscars, one at least three. And most of the other films we're going to be talking about in the list were at least at the table in those award seasons, uh, or if not that, were highly lucrative. Maybe one or two of them were a little bit more obscure. We might touch on that. But most of these films were prestige films. That's certainly true. Is there an easy definition of the conspiracy film? I mean, nowadays, if you look up Wikipedia and look at the genre as, as a list, you get films like Mission Impossible, The Fugitive, <laughs> The Matrix. I mean, are they what you would consider conspiracy films or what is the essence of a conspiracy film? I think if you were trying to boil it down, it's difficult enough, but there's a search for the truth. There's a quest for the truth. I mean, these films, they tend to be quest films, searching films. So there's that on one side. And then there's a great mistrust of government, those in authority and that you're being lied to fundamentally. Often it's one lone character who may be the sole person who's in possession of the truth, who's, trying, who's completely misunderstood by those around him. As I said, they tend to be thrillers, common themes of paranoia. Surveillance is a very common, a common theme in many of the films that we're going to look at. Accidental surveillance or intentional. Sometimes people are overhearing murders on tapes and that puts their own lives in threat. So I think it's a search for the truth and a, and a, a fundamental belief that you're being lied to, that the, the, the tenets of society and government are false. 
Okay, David, let's look in a little bit more detail um, about some of the films that you've picked out. And we'll start with 1975's Three Days of the Condor, which was directed by Sidney Pollock and has a bit of an all-star cast in Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway, Cliff Robertson and Max Van Sydow. Redford plays a CIA researcher who rather stressfully comes back to his desk after lunch to find all his colleagues dead. Yes, indeed. <laughs> a stressful moment, indeed. And um, This was Robert Redford's fourth collaboration with, with director Sidney Pollock. And again, to our earlier point, a galaxy of stars. This is one of the more say, straightforwardly entertaining films in the list of films we're going to talk about today. He's, he plays rather counterintuitively. Robert Redford plays a kind of shy, retiring, bookish type who is stumbles upon a novel that has been translated into many, many, many languages but has not sold anywhere and finds this rather anomalous and is questioning this and feels there might be some some hidden message, some hidden meaning in this book. And just as he's about to get his report back, as you say, he steps out to buy a sandwich, comes back and everybody's dead. Subsequently goes on the run, kidnaps, in a sense, a stranger played by Faye Dunaway. And being a movie, they fall in love. And either go on the run with Max von Sydow plays an assassin on their trail. And it is a very gripping, as I say, more kind of breathlessly entertaining thriller than, uh, than some of the more anxious making films on this list, but um, highly recommended. Three Days of the Condor is available to rent on Google Play and to stream on Now TV. Uh, next up is 1974, uh, The Conversation, which was directed by Francis Ford Coppola and stars Gene Hackman, Harrison Ford and Robert Duvall. And I suppose, David, what's interesting about this is that it feeds into the paranoia of the time because it actually focuses on a man who is spying on a couple. Yes, exactly. Gene Hackman plays Harry Call. He's a surveillance expert who's, who lives a very ascetic, uh, stripped down, almost like a hermit-like existence. He's, his occupation is spying on others, but he's, he's terrified of, of his own privacy being infiltrated. He lives in an apartment with no furniture or accoutrements. He has no friends. He, his, one solo, his one solo pursuit is, is the saxophone. And apart from that, he's, he's almost completely kind of withdrawn into himself, but spends his time surveilling others. The film focuses on a, a moral dilemma that he, he encounters when he's, he's surveilling a couple in Union Square in San Francisco and he, he feels he's, he's stumbled upon a threat to this couple that they, they feel their lives are, are, under, are under threat and he's, he, he tries to kind of surreptitiously help them and then feels he himself is being surveilled and spirals into a paranoid web of delusion and yeah, it, it, gets, it gets quite a dark place. Francis Ford Coppola made the conversation between Godfather 1 and Godfather 2, which were enormous productions on a very vast scale. This is much more of a stripped down lean. It's almost like a, a palate cleanser in a sense that he needed to, the director needed just to get back between those two enormous films and do something very tight, very small, almost a character study with Gene Hackman who apparently found the role very difficult. Gene Hackman is apparently a very affable man, very lively, very bubbly. The character he's playing here in this film is almost completely reserved, completely withdrawn into himself. He barely speaks. And this allegedly was very difficult for Hackman. But um, he has stated that as one of his favourite performances in his own career. Yeah, well worth catching. The conversation is available to stream from SkyGo and Now TV. David Brian Lloyd, who was on the podcast two weeks ago, picked this next film when he curated our bigger picture strand. John Travolta overhears something he shouldn't in Brian De Palma's Blowout. Yeah, exactly. Now this is a it's similar in a sense to to the conversation, and both films actually both directors Brian De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola cited Antonioni's nineteen sixty six film Blow Up as being an influence on their films, which was David Hemmings. That was with, with photography, but in these it's, it's audio. So in 
blow out John Travolta is he's a sound technician and he's working on a horror film and he has to he has to find the, uh, a scream sound effect and one night he he accidentally records uh, a car crash in which a presidential hopeful a governor dies and the John Travolta character manages to rescue a young lady who is with him so he has unintentionally embroiled himself in what was possibly an assassination attempt and what's interesting about the film is it's it's redolent, in a sense, of the Chappaquiddick incident in 1969, where Senator Ted Kennedy crashed his car off a bridge, which resulted in the death of a 28-year-old passenger. Now, I think audiences at the time the film was released in 1981 it can only have been thinking of that incident. It is, it's, it's a thinly veiled, I think, dramatization of that. Although this being a Brian De Palma film, it's layered into a very luridly entertaining, over-the-top, fun movie, far more of, a, of an entertaining choice, in a sense, than uh, the conversation in, a, in, in any way. It, feel, it feels like the film was a very deliberate turn for Travolta because he'd obviously, he was best known for Grease and Saturday Night Fever and the sitcom Welcome Back, Cutter that he was doing on American TV. So does it feel very much like a Travolta vehicle or does it feel still very much like a conspiracy film just with him in it, if you know what I mean? Um, I think it certainly works as a conspiracy film and I think he, he, gives, he gives a very solid performance. It, it's interesting that the film was, was, it was a flop on release. I mean, it, it, was a financial, it was a financial disaster and probably contributed to, to John Travolta's wilderness years that, that kind of lingered on from the early 80s, uh, even though it has since been, since been dusted off and reappraised and it's considered one of Brian De Palma's best films. It's certainly a very central film in John Travolta's career, but at the time it didn't do him any favours, unfortunately. So we've had, sorry, Blowout, I should say, is available to rent uh, from iTunes. Two films about journalists now, David, um, as well as two directed by Alan J. Pakula. We've had Robert Redford, we've had Gene Hackman, we've had uh, John Travolta, and now Warren Beatty is the next superstar from the 70s to turn up in a film. This is the Parallax View, um, and it's about a man battling a shadowy organisation who might be behind political assassinations. Yeah, political assassinations loom large in this list. I mean, I think you can really go back to the Kennedy assassination as almost the defining myth of of the American conspiracy theory, conspiracy film. So, as you say, yeah, uh, witnesses to an assassination of a presidential candidate uh, start to mysteriously disappear. Warren Beatty plays a journalist who goes undercover an investigation that leads him to Parallax Corporation. Again, as so often in these films, a shadowy entity and this film, it's involved in the recruitment and training of hitmen this is a very memorable film for many many reasons alan j pakula uh, as you say all the president's men and this and you could fold in clute as well if listeners are interested the, the third part of his trilogy of sorts but this one is very memorable for one standout scene in which uh, joe frady the journalist played by warren Beatty, uh, goes undercover in the parallax corporation and is presenting himself as a wannabe hitman and he goes into their their induction procedure this kind of almost brainwashing like sequence similar in a sense to um, what Malcolm McDowell undergoes in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange so they're subjected to a montage of confrontational imagery which they must evaluate um, his responses it's truly an extraordinary moment in the film a very memorable film in many ways as well and certainly that trilogy of the Parallax View All the President's Men and Clute are um, Absolutely memorable. We're interesting. We're going to talk now about all the president's men, and I suppose one thing that marks out the conspiracy films, as we've spoken about, is that they can be quite actiony, and there's there's a lot of chases, etc., in these films. But kind of the one that's regarded as the king of them all, all the president's men, it's actually a very serious film, which I think is often what people don't expect of it because they're expecting the conspiracy genre to be something quite different. But it is quite a, a straightforward, very somber film. 
Yeah, it's slow and it's dark. And what I love about this film is that it's almost as though you, the viewer, are uncovering the information in real time with Woodward and Bernstein, with, with the, the two reporters at the centre of it. You're, it's that slow accretion of details and that gradually coalesces into something greater. Like it's, it's not barreling through the information. They're, they're picking over, uh, <laughs> you know, scant pieces of information, finding leads that lead to other leads until they have the, the assistance of the infamous um, informer, Deep Throat, who doesn't tell them a heck of a lot, but points them in the right direction. And that becomes absolutely riveting. You know, it's, it's though you're part of an investigation. I've rarely seen a film do that so well, where it puts the viewer inside the investigation. Um, it really trusts the audience to follow a huge amount of complex detail. And that in itself is very, very absorbing. It's also fundamentally ba based on absolute fact, where a lot of the films we're discussing here, they're, they may have been influenced by Chappaquiddick or the Kennedy assassination, but they've gone off on their own tangent and made a, you know, a paranoid fantasia about that. The, All the President's Men is based on absolute fact and very, very real and recent history. I mean, the film was made in 1976. It's depicting events that happened maybe a year and a half beforehand. So this is very, very, very fresh. And I guess the film had a lot riding on it on that. It had to be very respectful to that very recent history and it is hugely successful i mean it's if if you ask me to pick one film from the list that if people hadn't seen any of them i would i would certainly choose all the president's men as being a perhaps the gold standard of the 70s conspiracy theory well it's available to rent from itunes google and sky and the parallax view is also available to rent from google play and sky store now david finally i was going to say more recently but it's actually, and I'm going to take a deep breath when I say this, 30 years since the release of JFK, which is a slightly different take on the conspiracy in that it's all happening at a remove from the actual event, that it isn't a direct witness, but it's still a fascinating film. I absolutely adore this film. And it is, <laughs> it is a Marmite film. I know many people that will be shouting at the podcast that we've included this because this the realm of pure speculation here really this is oliver stone's grand folly in one sense it's an adaptation of uh, jim garrison's book and the trail of the assassins which he wrote kind of which um follows him kind of post-warren report which investigated the kennedy assassination and pointed the finger of blame at lee harvey oswald and jim garrison thought this was this was baloney and went on his own Slightly harebrained, slightly fantastical quest, which involved everything from the Bay of Pigs to mobsters to New Orleans you know, gangsters and, and everything but the kitchen sink. And Oliver Stone really goes for it in a three hour plus film that I think is one of the best edited films in history. This is a very divisive film because we are in the realm of speculation. It is not based on fact and that will be very difficult for, for some people to swallow. But Oliver Stone has said that he found the Warren Commission a myth, and he wanted to create a counter myth. So he's acknowledging that much that is depicted in the film is perhaps inaccurate, or at least, as I said, speculative, but he wants to counter the accepted version of events. So whether or not you're willing to go along with that will, I think, in large part dictate your responses to the film. For me, it's as a technical feat, it's so extraordinary, it's impossible not to be swept up in it and you do have to take it with a bucket of salt that so much here is you know it's quite wild and um, fantastical but i think if you go along for the journey there's certainly a lot of food for thought and um and what a journey <laughs> yeah it's it's strange 
um, that Oliver Stone got branded as a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I know we both read his the first volume of his autobiography there recently. And while he'd always made political films, he'd never made kind of conspiracy films. But yet that seemed to dog him after he made JFK that he had this reputation of that he, he was, his primary interest was conspiracy genre. That is that is true. Um, I, I think if you if you know a quick look at IMDb uh, entry, it's probably not borne out. It's a similar one to thinking that Martin Scorsese only makes gangster films. You know, Stone is a more varied filmmaker that people give him credit for. But he has stated that JFK was certainly a turning point in his filmmaking and put him on a different on a different road. I mean, it definitely seems to have awoken something in him. Certainly stylistically, I mean, he brought that that style where we're mixing many, many different film stocks and many, you know, styles going from Super 8 to widescreen and, you know, black and white and up and down and back again. He brought that to its logical extreme with Natural Born Killers, which is this incredible collage of film styles. So I think stylistically, something changed him with the making of JFK and he, he's, he's kept that style going often in his films, but also it awoke. I mean, he was always a political filmmaker. He was always a very questioning political filmmaker. I mean, you go back to his early films such as Salvador, you know, Platoon. I mean, this was a man who was questioning the status quo always. But certainly with JFK, it definitely accelerated, I think. JFK is also a very interesting film if you ever want to play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon because absolutely everybody who's ever appeared on screen is in JFK. Um, it's available to rent from iTunes and Microsoft. David, thanks so much for sharing your favourite conspiracy films. Thank you so much for having me on. That's all from this week's iFi podcast. My thanks to Ryan White and David O'Mahony. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.